You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. There's a story about Fitzgerald's Hollywood years that I can't get out of my head. Shortly after he met Sheila Graham in 1937, Fitzgerald read in the paper that the Pasadena Playhouse was presenting a stage adaptation of his short story, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz. Fitzgerald decided to put on the dog. He called the Playhouse, announced that he was the author, and reserved two seats. He also reserved a chauffeured limousine and took Sheila, in evening clothes, out to dinner and on to the theater. When they arrived, no one was in the lobby. It turned out that some students were performing the play in an upstairs hall. The upstairs hall was pretty empty, too. Just about a dozen or so casually dressed people, mostly the players' mothers, it seemed, in the audience. Afterward, Fitzgerald went backstage to congratulate the student players, later telling Sheila, They were nice kids. I told them they'd done a good job. Anyone who loves Fitzgerald can't help but wish that he could have had a glimpse into the future. Just a couple of decades beyond his own death, he would have seen crowds of students, much like those Pasadena amateur actors reading The Great Gatsby in college and high school classrooms across America. Further on, he would have seen several more Gatsby films, the operas, the ballet, and Gats he would have seen volumes of criticism and biographies towering in piles as big as the Ritz. And he would have seen the money, how he would have reveled in the money. But Fitzgerald saw none of that. In May of 1940, Fitzgerald wrote a letter to Max Perkins in which he abruptly detoured from updates about his work in Hollywood to talk for two paragraphs about his daughter Scotty and about Gatsby. I think it's one of the saddest literary letters ever written. As often happens with Fitzgerald, though, there's also that eerie quality of prescience. I wish I was in print. It will be odd a year or so from now when Scotty assures her friends I was an author and finds that no book is procurable. Would the 25-cent press keep Gatsby in the public eye? Or is the book unpopular? Has it had its chance? Would a popular reissue in that series with a preface, not by me, but by one of its admirers, I can maybe pick one, make it a favorite with classrooms, professors, lovers of English prose, anybody? But to die so completely and unjustly after having given so much... Even now, there is little published in American fiction that doesn't slightly bear my stamp. In a small way, I was an original. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He's dead five months later. Maureen Corrigan is the book critic for NPR's Fresh Air, and her first book was Leave Me Alone, I'm Reading. She's won the Edgar Award for her criticism. Her new book is So We Read On, How the Great Gatsby Came to Be and Why It Endures. Thank you for joining me, Maureen. Oh, thank you for having me, Rick. 
this is such a wonderful book because it is a reading experience about the reading experience. (laughs) (laughs) And that makes it doubly fun for people who love to read. Yeah, well, I'm I'm pleased that you think so. Thank you. That's what I was aiming for. I, I wanted to try to draw readers in, most of whom I'd assumed had read Gatsby once at least, probably in high school, I wanted to draw them into the experience of rereading it and doing so by focusing on you know, key passages in Gatsby, but also talking about its weird literary history and inviting readers to come out with me to places like the Long Island Sound so that we could look at East Egg and West Egg and go down into the Fitzgerald archives at Princeton and the University of South Carolina And scariest trip of all, come back with me to my old high school in Astoria, Queens, which is in the landscape of the novel. I hadn't been back to my old high school in 39 years. The kids looked at me like I was the crypt keeper. But it was fascinating to sit in on those classes in the place where I read Gatsby the first time and to hear what this generation of students reading Gatsby for the first time had to say about it. I think that the essential word you used there was rereading. And I think this is something that's really undersold in the American reading landscape. Yeah, well, you know, we have to fight these days to have space for the arts and the humanities in in college and and high school syllabi. You know, there's, there's so much of a pressure these days to make sure kids are educated in something quote-unquote practical that I think, you know, we, we tend to downplay the, the crucial importance of reading, of having some kind of literary heritage. You know, this is knowledge that carries you throughout your life. You know, I fully expect that if I'm, I'm allowed a few precious moments of consciousness before I depart this mortal coil for good, that I will probably be thinking about Gatsby, you know, in addition to my loved ones. But uh, this is the book that's going to stay with me. You know, one of the things that you mentioned was how forward-looking the book is. But it's also steeped in the past. And I think that combination uh, captures something essential about all of Fitzgerald. Is mm. He was something of a Buddhist in this idea of embracing opposing notions. Oh, he was. You know, his famous quote is that, um, you know, it, it, about having to keep two opposing ideas in one's head at the same time. It, it's an idea, by the way, he got from the poet John Keats, who he revered, um, negative capability to have two opposing ideas in your head at the same time and respect them both. Um, The greatest example of that in Gatsby is the fact that the novel tells us that the American dream is a mirage, but it does so in language that makes that dream irresistible. You know, we, we see Gatsby go under, uh, literally, as he's reaching out for Daisy's green light. He's, he's, he's pulled under by the weight of his desire, by the burden of his own past. And, of course, he's dead by the time the novel actually opens. So we know that his quest is doomed. And yet you're drawn in by the power of Nick Carraway's voice to think this is... This is the greatest way any human being could spend his life, his energy, trying to reach something that's out of reach. 
Well, you mentioned something else there, Nick Carraway's voice. Mm. It's a voice that will echo in your head forever once you read it. Yeah, yeah. I, Nick's voice is is mournful. It's retrospective. It's filled for longing for his dead friend, Jay Gatsby. And th- by the way, this is one of the ways in which the novel is almost neurotically over-designed. Everyone in this novel is reaching for someone or something that they can't possibly attain. Nick is reaching for Gatsby, who's dead. Gatsby is reaching for Daisy, who he's never going to actually you know, hold forever. Uh, Tom Buchanan is reaching for, for Daisy. Myrtle Wilson is reaching for Tom. George Wilson is reaching for Myrtle. <laughs> I think the only person in the novel who's not reaching for anything is Daisy, and she's just the empty vacuum. But, um, yeah, to go back to Nick's voice, he's so... He's like the ancient mariner in Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem. He's the guy who survives the wreck to tell the tale, and he's survived the wreck, the, the disaster of that summer of 1922, and that's... That's what he's telling us readers about when the novel opens two years later. He's telling us what happened during that brief summer of 1922. And you know from that elegiac quality of his voice, the mournfulness, he is never going to go beyond that summer. He will spend the rest of his life thinking about Gatsby and talking about that summer. That voice that Fitzgerald creates so beautiful, so elegiac, is in stark contrast to to those of some of his contemporaries who were trying to achieve something more lofty, which Fitzgerald achieved by avoiding that very trope. Yeah, I think so. You know, I'm an unapologetic Fitzgerald maniac. I mean, I I just, I revere his writing. Uh, He's part of that generation in the 20s that's trying to make American literature sound American. You know, and I'm thinking of people like Gertrude Stein, Ernest Hemingway, um, H.L. Mencken, who was also Fitzgerald's good friend, who, who wrote about the American language. They're trying to wrest American literature away from the Brits. But I think what Fitzgerald does so much more elegantly, right, than anybody else is he manages to weave in the slang, the contractions. I mean, when you read Gatsby with an eye to looking for, you know, the the slang words of the time and the contractions, it's amazing how casually written this book is in, in some spots. And he even weaves in, of course, gangster slang, Gatsby's name, derives from gat, which is 20s criminal slang for a pistol. But then he's got these passages like the famous ending of The Great Gatsby, So We Beat On, Boats Against the Current, Born Back Ceaselessly into the Past. You know, it's pure poetry. And somehow he makes it all work together without sounding kind of like he's putting on that poetic voice. Well, what you do in this book so well is to interweave an understanding, a deep understanding of the appeal of the book with an ability to bring us into the background and the side parts of the book and 
the history of this book, which is really fascinating in and of itself. Yeah, thank you. I mean, the history could probably have been a separate book on its own. What a what a strange and twisted path to recognition as an American classic The Great Gatsby has had. It's published in 1925, and Fitzgerald's literary friends, again, people like Gertrude Stein, T.S. Eliot, who read it three times in the first few months it was published, they recognize that there's something special about this book, that it, that it really is a great achievement. But the popular press doesn't. The reviews are deeply mixed, mostly negative. The most famous negative review, I think, um, appeared in the New York World. And the headline read, Fitzgerald's latest, a dud. I mean, it didn't sell. Upon his death in 1940, there were remaindered copies of The Great Gatsby from 1925 still moldering away in Scribner's warehouse. So, you know, Fitzgerald, when he was living in Hollywood those last years before his death, he would walk into bookstores and try to buy his own books to give his presents to his friends. Um, his lover at the time, Sheila Graham, tells stories about how the bookstore owners were aghast. They thought Fitzgerald was dead. And, of course, there was nothing on the shelves for him to buy. He had to order copies from Scribner's of his own books. His last royalty check in 1940 was for $13.13. And his secretary at the time, Francis Kroll Ring, says that that figure represented the books that Fitzgerald himself bought for his friends. You do such a wonderful job of creating the characters around Fitzgerald and in his life and giving us a picture of his life as he wrote Gatsby and the parallels between his life and those of the of the life he created for Gatsby. I really love the way you, that you what you've done with Zelda oh, and Scotty. I think that this is one of the most uh, nuanced and and understanding portraits of a family in a crisis. Oh, in 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 such a long and ongoing crisis, uh, Zelda's first attack. Uh, she, you know, she was. I I think it's generally agreed that she suffered from schizophrenia. Some people say manic depression, but when in 1929, um, when they were living in in Paris. Zelda had her first attack, and she tries to drive a car that she's she's behind the wheel of the car. She tries to drive it off the road and basically tries to kill herself and Scott, who's in the car with her. Um, sounds a little bit, doesn't it, like Daisy driving and, and, and basically how bad it is for a woman to be in the driver's seat. I mean, it's some of that anxiety of women having the power of being behind the wheel. From 1929 on, she's in and out of mental institutions and until her own death. Um, And Scott, you know, you can say a lot of things about Scott Fitzgerald. He was a mean drunk. He, um, you know, seemed to sometimes not value his own great gifts enough and, and possibly wasted some of them. But I think he was such a loyal husband 
to Zelda. He worked so hard to keep her in private institutions. He was a loving father, a little strict. When you read his letters to his daughter, Scotty, he comes off like a tiger dad. But he, you know, he's working to keep her in private boarding schools. He's involved. And when you read his letters from the 1930s, when his writing is out of fashion, he's criticized by you know, other writers, like, of course, Hemingway, um, Steinbeck. He's, he, Fitzgerald is seen as kind of um, a holdover from the Roaring Twenties, and he's not a proletarian writer. You know, he's, he's not talking about the masses. He's not somehow in step with the, um, the, the tenor of the times during the Great Depression. You read his letters from the 1930s, and he just, he's trying so hard. He's trying to work on Tender as the Night, which comes out in 1934. And again, sells okay, but first of all, who's buying books during the Great Depression? And secondly, it's criticized for, again, being a book about rich people at the wrong time. No wonder he was drinking. Um, And then he goes to Hollywood, the nail on the coffin, and Hollywood... Hollywood has a a history of treating our great writers. People like Raymond Chandler also went out to Hollywood, William Faulkner, treating them not so well. (laughs) Fitzgerald was treated like a hand. He was moved from script to script to work on different movies. He worked for two weeks on Gone with the Wind um, and felt very alienated in Hollywood, which is where he eventually died um, of probably his third heart attack in 1940. When you were putting together this book, it's so well-crafted, leading us through the reading experience of the book that you're talking about, but leading us as a reading experience into Faulkner and his life Mm -hmm. and his writing process and the financial worries he had. Talk about trying to figure out how to put all this together in what reads like a really beautifully crafted story arc. Oh, thank you. You know, I think I think this way. (laughs) I tend to think um, probably in a non-linear way, but I, I love the writing process. I love being alone in a room. I write in my office at Georgetown and um, I love sort of writing and then having other thoughts come into my head which I usually scribble on little post-it notes around on the wall around me and think, oh, I have to get back to that, or I have to work that, that anecdote about Fitzgerald um, and what happened when he got his first book contract. I have to work that into this passage somehow. So it almost feels like um, just having a lot of strands of different stories and um, trying to keep them in the air at the same time and figure out where where to work one strand in. In some ways, Fitzgerald makes it easy. His own life is such, oh gosh, such an over-the-top story. You know, this this boy who grows up mostly in, in St. Paul um, and his, his family, his parents, they live on Summit Avenue. They live where the wealthy folks in St. Paul live, except they're renters. They never own a house on Summit Avenue. Fitzgerald's mother's family, the McQuillans, had money. And, you know, it seems like the grandmother McQuillan gave them money from time to time. So there they are on this in this landscape where 
to the left and right of him, Fitzgerald can see these lavish mansions. And he's on the avenue, but he's not of it. You know, he, he said late in life, he, he writes in a letter to John O'Hara, the novelist who was a friend, this was the story of my life the poor boy at a rich boy's school, you know, the, just always kind of on the, the outside looking in. When he got to Princeton, um, he tried out for the football team, which was kind of a mistake. He was a slight build, almost pretty looking. When you see those early photos of Fitzgerald, he's the kind of boy who, you know, mothers would say, oh, what a, what a gorgeous young boy, young man he is. But other boys kind of ridiculed as almost looking too feminine looking. So he tries out for the football team, supposedly on his first day at Princeton, he's immediately rejected. (laughs) He's voted the prettiest boy in the freshman class. Can you imagine the kiss of death at at Princeton at the time? And um, luckily for him, he finds solace in the kinds of clubs that I think nerds, and I use that term with affection, my 16-year-old daughter proudly calls herself a nerd, that nerds even today find a home in. He joins the debating club, he joins the theater club, and he gets really involved. Uh, He also gets really involved in the social world at Princeton, so much so that he's asked to leave. He's on academic probation in his second year, and by his junior year, he voluntarily leaves and and enlists in the army. But it's always this sense um, of not quite belonging, you know, not quite being at ease. And I think you see that in Gatsby. I mean, here's a place where it's very easy to make those connections between Fitzgerald's life and the book. Gatsby tries too hard. Those lavish parties, those extravagant clothes, those shirts, that pink suit, you know, the way he keeps saying old sport, almost as an affectation. The the rich people who are to the manor born of East Egg, they sniff him out and they see that he's trying too hard and they know that he's not really one of them. You know, uh, what does Tom Buchanan say at the end of Gatsby when there's that great confrontation in the Plaza Hotel and it comes out that Gatsby and Daisy have been having an affair? He calls Gatsby Mr. Nobody from Nowhere. And that's that's who he's always going to be to those to those rich folks on East Egg. That's who Fitzgerald was to those, you know, those boys at Princeton. Mr. Nobody from Nowhere. That's the American story. America is a nation of the nouveau riche. You go anywhere in Europe and look to your side, there's some place that's 2,000 years old. In America, you go and you look and there's some place that's 20 years old. Yeah. And we're, we are a nation of the nouveau yeah. riche. We are. Um, it, You know, Fitzgerald, I think he's our sharpest writer about class, which is... It's kind of ironic for me to say that because, again, in his time, and especially in the 1930s, he was almost read as being clueless, that he was um, just extolling the glories of being rich and having a great time and, you know, having parties all the time. That's not what he's doing. He's such a sharp observer of the accents, the mannerisms that mark 
the the folks who are comfortable with their status as American aristocrats versus the the folks who are just really trying to arrive. Um, there's a scene early on in Gatsby that I love. It's in chapter one, and it's when Nick is is arriving at Tom and Daisy's mansion to have dinner with them. And and remember, Daisy is Tom's cousin. They haven't seen each other in a few years. And Jordan Baker, the golfer, is also present in the Buchanan's mansion. She's seated on a sofa. When Nick comes into the room, the way she's described is fabulous. She's described as as sitting with her chin tilted upward as though she were balancing a teacup on it. And she barely moves when he is introduced to her. Um, Nick is introduced to Jordan, and she doesn't even, she glances at him. You know, there are those people who don't need to make an effort, and then there are the other people who are making a tremendous effort to impress. And the difference is old money versus new money. Fitzgerald called it breeding versus sim- simply having money. It's the vapid, the beautiful, and the damned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he he caught it. He He knew that simply having a big bank account didn't gain you entrance into the elite circles. And he also... It's not like he's saying in Gatsby or any of his other novels or short stories that the elite circles are where you ultimately want to end up. He's critical of of that world as well. But remember, at the end of Gatsby, he says, it's almost like Gatsby is born out of his own time. At the end of Gatsby, you get those beautiful passages about Dutch sailors spying, you know, the continent of America for the first time. Of course, his his history is a little off, right? The Dutch weren't the first to spot the North American continent. But he said, it's like he's saying Gatsby should have been born then, in the great age of exploration, when there would have been something commensurate with his capacity for wonder. All that Gatsby has as a goal is Daisy, and she is not commensurate with Gatsby's capacity for wonder. She's just like an empty vessel. She's she's a nothing. And that's that's the final verdict of the novel on Daisy. That's the word that's used about her. Nothing. You know, you used a phrase I think that's really interesting, the sense of wonder. And I think that that's something that Fitzgerald really effectively evokes from the very first word of this book to the end is to look at America and look at all these familiar landscapes. When you read them through the through the lens of this prose, you see everything anew. You do. Uh, you know, one, one place that you see anew, I think, is New York City in the 1920s. Uh, I'm from New York, and I teach a course at Georgetown on on New York literature. I always teach Gatsby as a New York novel. There's that famous passage that anyone who's read Gatsby will probably remember, where Nick and Gatsby are driving into Manhattan, and they drive over the Queensboro Bridge. And there's that line about 
New York seen from the Queensboro Bridge is always New York seen for the first time. And it, it's a it's a passage that's often quoted on literary calendars because it's so beautiful. But as they're driving over the Queensboro Bridge, other people are on that bridge too. And they're passing Nick and Gatsby in Gatsby's fabulous roadster. There's a, a car that passes them that's driven by a white chauffeur and three African-Americans are the passengers. And there's another car, well, there's a funeral procession, a funeral cortege of cars that also passes Nick and Gatsby. And the passengers are described as immigrants from Southeastern Europe in this funeral um, you know, motorcade that's going past them. This is a novel that both transcends its time and is very much of its time. And if you know anything about the social history of America, the late teens, the 20s, America is very anxious at this point in history about the vast wave of immigrants who've been pouring in from Russia, from Southeastern Europe. Um, they don't speak English. Some of them are Jewish. You know, who are these people and what are they going to do to the country? America, white America, is also very anxious about the Great Migration. Um, African Americans pouring into northern cities from southern rural areas, especially you know Harlem in New York. It's the era of the Harlem Renaissance. You know, I I don't think Fitzgerald is an out and out racist in, or a nativist in this novel. Remember that Tom Buchanan is the guy who spouts all the racist. Uh, propaganda in the novel, and we're not supposed to like Tom. But it's a novel that notices these immigrants, people of color, and it doesn't, it's anxious about them. It doesn't quite know what to think about them. You imagine Fitzgerald rubbing shoulders with your own grandmother. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to think so, right? My My grandmother, you know, is one of those millions upon millions of young immigrants. She came over, as as far as I can figure, you know, in the 1890s. She was Polish. She was 17 years old when she came over. Um, didn't speak English. The, the story I always heard was that she was supposed to have been met at you know, at, at, at the harbor in New York by friends of friends. They didn't show up, but she had somehow caught the notice of a Jewish doctor and his wife on the boat. She was in steerage. They definitely weren't in steerage. And they invited her to come with them to their house in Westchester and be, you know, basically the cleaning lady in the house. Um, so thank God for that, right? I, You know, I can't imagine her life. She was illiterate. You know, the few documents I have of hers, she signs her name with an X. She was in New York in 1919. She was pregnant with my aunt. And I, I think, you know, you have to give Fitzgerald credit. He notices people like my grandmother in Manhattan. Now, he may not notice them and say, hooray, I'm so happy all these, <laughs> all these Polish immigrants and other immigrants from Europe are pouring in to uh, Manhattan. He, he, he seems a little bit more undecided about what to think about this vast immigrant wave, but he notices that they're part of America, too. You know, 
one of the things I think that made this book so fascinating to read for me was the way you weave in what we understand of how Fitzgerald wrote and his own financial situation. For all that he wrote about the rich, he tried to live like them, not very successfully. <laughs> yeah, gosh, it would have been better if he had just bought savings bonds. I guess that's a little before his time. But, uh, yeah, you know, you got to love him. He 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 grabbed life with both hands. <laughs> When he got the contract for his his first novel, This Side of Paradise, um, which was published in 1920, he had written This Side of Paradise three times and submitted it to Scribner's three times. And the third time he submitted it, Maxwell Perkins, who became his editor and who, of course, is one of the legendary heroes of American literature in the 20th century, Perkins edited Hemingway, he edited Thomas Wolfe. Um, Maxwell Perkins stood up at a Scribner's board meeting and announced that he was going to quit if Scribner's didn't publish This Side of Paradise. Scribner's gives Fitzgerald a contract. Fitzgerald gets the telegram that they're going to publish his his novel. He runs out of his parents' house in St. Paul on Summit Avenue, waving the telegram at passing traffic. Apparently, he almost got run over, which would have cut the career very short. He's so thrilled. He he and Zelda get married um, at St. Patrick's Rectory on Fifth Avenue shortly after the novel is published in April of 1920. They have to get married in the rectory because Zelda wasn't Catholic, so they couldn't get married in the church. And then proceeds the part of the Fitzgerald history that everybody sort of knows. They're living in the Plaza Hotel, the Commodore, the Biltmore. They're getting kicked out of hotels because they're too noisy and rowdy. They're like college students on this wild champagne spree, you know, partying at night, riding in taxis, jumping in fountains, jumping in the fountain of the Plaza Hotel with champagne bottles in their hands. Um it was a giddy spree for them. But, you know, it only lasted about 10 years, and then it comes to an abrupt end. One of the things I think that is uh, so interesting is the way you create all these great characters around Fitzgerald. You mentioned Maxwell Perkins. I love him the way you've crafted him in this book. Yeah, and I hear there's going to be a movie starring Colin Firth as Maxwell Perkins, which, boy, that's a doubleheader for me. Be still my heart, <laughs> Colin Firth and Maxwell Perkins. Um, yeah, he, what a great guy. I mean, what, what a, I don't mean this in a patronizing way. What, what a great servant of literature, you know? He, he, he lent Fitzgerald money. He, nursed all of his writers through their writing anxieties. He writes these beautiful buck-up letters to Fitzgerald. He tries to mediate between Fitzgerald and Hemingway when Hemingway basically drops Fitzgerald as a friend and Fitzgerald is terribly hurt. Um, and then at the end, when Fitzgerald dies... He works so hard in the in the early 40s to try to keep Fitzgerald's name before the public. He works with the literary critic Edmund Wilson to bring out Fitzgerald's last novel, which he never completed, The Loves of the Last Tycoon. He brings out an edition of that with The Great Gatsby. Um, 
he works with other other Fitzgerald friends like Dorothy Parker, Malcolm Cowley, to bring out collections of short stories. He doesn't want to let Fitzgerald be forgotten. I I, I think I think he was one of the most brilliant readers of literature and one of the most decent human beings that that we've got in, in American literature. Well, for me as a reader, it's just so wonderful to re-experience The Great Gatsby, which I reread just before I read your book. Oh, thank you. That's the perfect way to read both of my both of these books. <laughs> and then to go into your book and kind of re-experience the book I had just reread again through the lens of your literary scholarship and your, you know, emotional understanding. You visited a lot of the places that Fitzgerald lived, including more recently his house in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Yeah, Paul. So Saint talk Paul. about that. Yeah. Well, again, it's it's on Summit Avenue, which is such a Gosh, such a fabulous landscape because you get these mansions. James J. Hill, who was the railroad tycoon, who is a model for Dan Cody in in The Great Gatsby, the um, the very wealthy guy on his yacht who pulls the young James Gats out of the water and you know makes a gentleman of him. I mean, for a while, the James J. Hill mansion was the largest private residence in America. You look at this thing, and it looks like the castle out of Downton Abbey, just sitting there on this avenue in St. Paul, Minnesota, taking up vast acres. Um, it's it's such an over-the-top landscape. It's high up. It's on a bluff in St. Paul, so the wealthy look down upon <laughs> the, the lesser human beings who live down the, down the bluff. And Fitzgerald's family, his parents and his younger sister, Annabelle, lived in apartments in you know, these attached homes on Summit Avenue. So they were by no means, you know, the working class. Um, they're, they're nice apartment buildings, but they're still apartments. It, it must have been hard for Fitzgerald because he had friends who lived in these mansions. And to, you know, to always try to put a good face on things. Um, you know, his first love, I'm skipping a little bit ahead here, but when Fitzgerald was a sophomore at Princeton, he returned home to St. Paul at Christmas time. And there was a dance at which he met a girl named Ginevra King. She was visiting from Chicago. She was visiting a friend who lived in St. Paul. And Ginevra King, it's such a wonderful name, was the daughter of an incredibly wealthy man in Chicago. Her house in Chicago looks like a small department store, the pictures I've seen of it. They fall in love, and they're... Their relationship, about a year and a half, is conducted mostly through letters. Fitzgerald visits her in Chicago, and in his hearing, Ginevra's father says, poor boys shouldn't think of marrying rich girls. That that wounded him. It cut him to the quick. But it wasn't the first time Fitzgerald was treated like that by these, you know, this very wealthy crowd who he hung out with. That sense of being there but not belonging there, 
I think, permeates uh, The Great Gatsby. And again, I think it's a hallmark of American life that we live in a culture where most of us will never be celebrities, yet all we ever see are celebrities. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And um, I mean, I think one thing that Baz Luhrmann did do right in his film, which, you know, I mostly was not a fan of, but (laughs) I don't want to sound like some cranky scold. It was fun for the -the over-the-topness of it. But it's almost like Leonardo DiCaprio was partly playing himself as a celebrity as well as playing Gatsby. Um, I'm sure if if we heard that Leonardo DiCaprio was down the street, all of us would be craning our necks out the window to try to get a glimpse, you know, the way that people are always trying to get a glimpse of the mysterious Gatsby in this novel. You can tell that Gatsby doesn't belong because he's uncomfortable at his own parties. He makes one of the strangest entrances of a main character in any novel, in in world literature that I've ever read. It's the third chapter. Nick has been invited to Gatsby's party. It's about midnight. He, he tells us he's sitting at a table with a woman and another man. And they he and the man start talking. And it comes out that this is Gatsby. This is his host. But Gatsby isn't particularly having a great time. He's awkward. He's socially awkward. One thing I loved about Gats, which was the seven-hour production that the Elevator Repair Service Theater Company put on of The Great Gatsby, word for word, seven hours off-Broadway. I saw it twice. Um, The actor who played Gatsby in Gats played him almost as though he had some kind of... um, social, um, what would you call it, social disorder. He wasn't at ease with other people. And and that definitely comes through in the novel. Gatsby, he's trying too hard, once again, to, to impress people and to be jovial, but he never seems at home in his own skin. The story of the writing of The Great Gatsby, just the actual where, where Fitzgerald was when he wrote it is wonderful. I love the scenes with with him and Ring Lardner in oh, that in that yeah. apartment, talk about. Yeah, uh, did you visit? You visited that apartment. I, d- I did. It was a house. He mm-hmm. rented a house. He and Zelda. It's on Long Island. It's um, in Great Neck, Long Island, on the North Shore, and Great Neck back in the twenties was home to a lot of entertainment types, a lot of actors in particular who were working on Broadway at the time. The reason was that Great Neck was one of the few expensive towns on Long Island that wasn't restricted. Jews could live in Great Neck. So you've got Groucho Marx in the neighborhood. You know, you've got all these fabulous entertainment types as well as very wealthy, you know, wasp blue bloods in the area as well. The house still stands on Six Gateway Drive in Great Neck. It it was a much smaller house at the time that the Fitzgeralds rented it. And he starts writing The Great Gatsby in an unheated upper room over the garage. Uh, I found a letter in the University of South Carolina archives that's never been collected in Fitzgerald's published letters in which he 
Fitzgerald is writing to a newspaper reporter a few days before he, Fitzgerald, leaves for the Riviera. And he, and he refers to his third novel that he's just finished, meaning Gatsby. Um, the landscape is fantastic. I went out on the Long Island Sound to look at East Egg and West Egg, you know, these two strange formations of land, which are basically um, Great Neck and Sands Point. And Sands Point is East Egg, Great Neck is West Egg, where Fitzgerald lived with folks like Ring Lardner, his writer friend. And they would spend evenings drinking gin. Gin was Fitzgerald's poison of choice. And looking out across Long Island Sound to East Egg, where fabulous parties were taking place at these mansions. In some ways, the landscape is unchanged. You still have those two strange formations you know, jutting out, the, this, these land formations jutting out into Long Island Sound. And at the tip of East Egg these days is this over-the-top mansion. It looks like a castle out of Cinderella. And I was told that the guy who owns the Arizona Ice Tea Company built this, uh, I want to be polite, built this <laughs> over-the-top mansion. I was about to say monstrosity, but what what, what does he care? He, he doesn't care what I think of his architecture. So it's you know, Adam Sandler has built a mansion for uh, his parents, at least that's the story. And it's the size of, you know, Macy's department store. You know, it's it's crazy mixed in with ordinary looking houses. You know, one of the things I think that is so interesting, and I think you bring this out in your book, is that the New York of the Great Gatsby, it seems um, almost futuristic in the way that it heralds what New York would become. Yeah. You can read that New York and say, wow, that seems pretty darn familiar. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, scholars of, of New York history, I, I, I always, uh, Ann Douglas, I'll give her book a plug. Um, her, her amazing book about New York in the 1920s is called Terrible Honesty. It's a line from a Raymond Chandler letter. She says that New York in the 1920s um, is the New York that if if we took a time capsule back, we could recognize New York in the 1920s. So many of the skyscrapers, for instance, that give New York its you know character, uh, the Chrysler Building, the Woolworth Building, the American Radiator Building, they're going up or or they're. Uh, in progress in the 1920s, the Empire State Building, which Fitzgerald took a picture of. And I, I saw his private photo albums at the University of South Carolina. He takes a picture of the um, Empire State Building, which is finished in 1931. And, and he writes next to this black and white photo, home again, because this is when he and Scotty and, and Zelda are coming home from Europe for the final time. So he was excited about these skyscrapers. But that New York, it, it's really in formation in the 1920s. Um, the advertising, the billboards, which, of course, play a role in Gatsby with the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg and that famous billboard that's in Queens. Um, they're going up. It's the age of advertising. Fitzgerald, in fact, gets his first job in New York in 1919 when he's still struggling as a writer. He's working for an advertising agency. So it's a New York that it starts to feel modern 
um, in the 1920s. I, man, I would love to take a time capsule back for a day. I would have such a good time walking and walking throughout New York. Well, in a sense, you did as you wrote this book, yeah. accessing all those archives. Uh, I talk a little bit about you know the frisson of being in holding those pieces of yeah. the past yeah. in your hand. Yeah, I went to the New York Municipal Archives, which is a building on Chambers Street. Anyone can go when they're in New York. It is a hidden treasure in Manhattan. It's like New York's attic. They've got the original <laughs> plans for Central Park, beautiful watercolor plans, so detailed. I looked at I looked at the architectural plans for the handles on drinking troughs for horses in watercolor, gorgeous. Anyway, I, I, I wanted to find two things there. I wanted to look at the map of the area in upper, upper Manhattan where Fitzgerald lived in 1919 when he came right out, out of the army and he was trying to make a name for himself as a writer, especially so that he could marry Zelda, who he was um, engaged to at the time, but her, Zelda's father, who was a judge, would not let them marry until Scott could prove that he could make a living as a writer. Fitzgerald rents an apartment at the northern tip of Manhattan. I looked at the real estate maps of the time. There is nothing up there. No wonder he was so depressed. Um, he lives next to a block that's labeled the windiest corner in all of Manhattan. The story goes that he papers the small room that he rents with over something like 150 rejection slips from the magazines at the t of the time, um, the glossy magazines that are just starting to be published in New York. He lasts about five months in Manhattan and goes home. I also wanted to see if I could find the Fitzgeralds. Um, marriage license, and I did, which is wow. it's so cool. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's. Uh, he, he signs himself you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he writes writer as his occupation. Um, and it, he blots a lot of things. You can tell he's sort of nervous, I think, in, in, in this marriage license. But um, it, it, there is something, maybe for me it's being raised Catholic and having a reverence for relics and objects. I don't know. But to hold, to hold that in my hand, when I went to South Carolina, the University of South Carolina, they have a briefcase in their collection that was Fitzgerald's briefcase in his Hollywood years. It's one of those beaten up leather briefcases that people, you know, used to carry. He had his name embossed in gold on the briefcase and his address. The address is, I think it's 537 Fifth Avenue. That's the address of the Scribner's building on Fifth Avenue. That was Fitzgerald's only permanent address. Holding that briefcase, which I got to do, I mean, it, it really did send chills down my body because also that briefcase tells you the story of his life in Hollywood. That's his only address, you know. So to hold that was a, was a thrill. To go to Princeton and to look at the, the painting, um, 
the Francisco Cugat painting that becomes the famous dust jacket of the, of the great Gatsby, the disembodied flapper's face floating over a night sky, over an amusement park that, that looks like Coney Island. They wheeled that painting into me as I was sitting in the rare books room looking at letters. It was like having the Mona Lisa next to me. I, I finally had to ask them to wheel the painting out because... I couldn't work with it next to me. It's so weird. It's so surrealistic. And by the way, for for listeners of a certain age, Francisco Cugat was the band leader, Xavier Cugat's brother. This is the only book jacket he ever did. He was paid $100 for it. And, and, And they threw it out at Scribner's after they used it. Somebody fished it out of the pile of publishing dead matter. That's what it was uh, labeled as. And save the painting. I mean, can you imagine? We would have lost that too. (laughs) Well, you uh, describe a collector who calls uh, the first editions of the book a $750 book and a $150,000 jacket. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, the jacket. I looked at some first editions of Gatsby in the archives at the University of South Carolina. Um, I mean, they're so beautiful. The The blue of the cover is a, a somewhat darker blue. Um, it is it is a thrill to hold the real thing. Um, I, I don't know. There's just something about that contact with the real human being that... Uh, that that means something to me and I think to other people. You know, when I was at South Carolina, um, I was I was talking with the Rare Books librarian one day, and he said to me, you know, we have a couch that, <laughs> that Fitzgerald had in Hollywood. And the, um, actually, Scotty Fitzgerald, the Fitzgerald's daughters, donated it to South Carolina. And there was a professor at South Carolina, Matthew Brookley, who was very much a Fitzgerald scholar. So she gave it to him. It was put in a, a an, a residential arts college at the University of South Carolina. And the students sit on, on it, on this couch, and they call it Zelda. <laughs> and so he said, you want to come see? And I said, of course. It had just been recovered by prisoners at the state uh, penitentiary in their in their uh, you know upholstery workshop. We couldn't find the couch because they were painting that the inside of that college, so it had been moved somewhere. And that's when the librarian said to me, "Well, do you want to hold the briefcase?" It was like like this consolation prize, which was even better. And I said, "Yes." Holding the briefcase made me feel more in touch with Fitzgerald the person. It, it made me feel in touch with the Fitzgeralds. Zelda is transformed from a couch to a real person who's, you know, at that point at Highland Hospital in North Carolina, she's institutionalized. You know, these were, were real people who struggled against illness and debt and their own, you know, weaknesses, and in Fitzgerald's case, produced something that is a masterpiece. A, a masterpiece that in many ways evokes all those different aspects of your life and that you evoke in this work. I think you do such a, a lovely job of creating the the kind of the soft, sad end of the when this novel was first published 
and then its resurgence, which is just amazing. It is amazing. Um, the The story about the resurgence that just knocks me out is is a story I really didn't know until I began researching the book. My my father was in the Navy during World War II, and like so many men of his generation, he did not talk a lot about his service. One thing that he said to me once or twice was, you know, we had these funny paperbacks during World War II, and I never knew what he meant until I started researching how Gatsby came back. During World War II, there was this program that was was founded by editors, librarians, authors, paper manufacturers. They wanted to do something for the war effort, and they wanted to get books in the hands of GIs and sailors and even prisoners of war in Germany and Japan through a program with the Red Cross. They decide to produce what are called armed services editions. And they're these long rectangular paperbacks printed on pulp paper. They're meant to fit in the servicemen's pockets. They printed over a thousand titles, everything from my friend Flicka to Margaret Mead's coming of age in Samoa to the latest Rex Stout mystery to Moby Dick to The Great Gatsby. Gatsby was chosen as one of the titles. So Gatsby goes from being nowhere, you know, you can't find it in bookstores on, on, when Fitzgerald dies in 1940, to having 155,000 copies of The Great Gatsby published in 1945. Um, these paperbacks were meant to be read seven times before they disintegrated. The greatest distribution, by the way, was on the eve of D-Day. General Eisenhower's staff decreed that every guy going over in a landing craft should have an, an armed services edition in his pocket. After I, I talked about the armed services edition on another radio show known as Fresh Air, a, a librarian from the um, Academy Awards Library in Hollywood, uh, that's not the proper name, but that's basically what it is, sent me a still photo from a documentary about D-Day. And the photo is of a, of a soldier in a landing craft reading A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which was one of the D-Day editions. Um, so it's so powerful for those of us who love books to think about, you know, what books meant to these guys. You, you read letters about Marines recalling how they crawled through the mud to get these air-dropped parcels of books delivered to them on islands in the South Pacific. It's just incredible. After 45, after Gatsby is published as an armed services edition, which, by the way, our Library of Congress in Washington has the complete collection. Any Anybody can go in and look at them. Um, they're incredible to hold, too. After 45, we get the paperback revolution. Gatsby is picked up as a paperback. 1949, we get a second Great Gatsby movie. This one stars Alan Ladd as Gatsby, and it's really filmed as a noir. The first time you see Gatsby in this film version, he's leaning out of a speeding roadster, machine gunning down his rivals in the bootleg business. It's not Gatsby either, any more than any of the other films, but it's a lot more fun, I think, than than the other versions of Gatsby. Well, one of the things I think that this book does so well is to evoke 
and remind us of how much books mean to us, how much any one book, how much all the books we ever read can mean to us, how the way that reading creates memories within us that are the equivalent of the memories of places we've been. They are, and they're, and they're just as important. I don't, I don't think it's insane to say that. <laughs> they're just as important. You know, I live in Washington, so I live quite close to the um, cemetery where Fitzgerald, where Scott and Zelda and Scotty are buried. Fitzgerald's family was from Baltimore, was from Baltimore Maryland, uh, around that area. So they had a plot in Rockville, Maryland, and on Scott and Zelda's grave, there's a stone that's flush with the ground, and the last words of the great Gatsby are engraved on that stone. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. People come and they leave flowers, they leave coins, which I don't quite understand, and they leave liquor bottles, <laughs> and they also leave manuscripts. I mean, they, they leave all sorts of things, but... Um, you know, I I go there. I I used I first discovered it because I I used to take my wheezing Mazda in for a car service at at the uh, Mazda dealership across the street. That's the kind of landscape, by the way. It is. It's more like the Valley of Ashes out there than anything else. But um, I you know I guess I'm sentimental enough that I I still go out there and and I do say to Scott Fitzgerald, "You did it. You did it." You know, you wrote the great American novel. You, you, you may not have gotten what you deserved at the time. You may not have gotten in your lifetime the, um, you know, the applause that you deserved, but you actually did it. <laughs> Maureen Corrigan's new book is So We Read On, How the Great Gatsby Came to Be and Why It Endures. Thank you for speaking with me, Maureen. Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>